Mark chapter 7. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be uh, the second part of what we began a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the second part of two stories that are highly significant in the way they're connected together in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but we're going to begin reading at verse 31, the second of these two stories, having covered the first two weeks ago. So, reading as it were this morning from Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. Then he, meaning Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, as we come to this passage and as we, as we look at uh, what is taking place here, we're reminded that one of the great themes of the Gospel of Mark, as we've been working, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, has been again and again Mark pointing out the power and the authority of Jesus to save people out of extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Uh, and, and these deliverances have been manifestations of, of actual supernatural miracles which Jesus have done on behalf of these people. But someone might raise an honest question. Uh, how can you reason or argue from the physical miracles which Jesus is so able to do uh, to a spiritual application? That is, can we really see in the miracles of Jesus to deliver people out of a physically difficult circumstance? Can we really see in that instance of Jesus' power also the idea that Jesus has all power to save? Can we go from the physical to the spiritual, so to speak? It's a fair question. But it also seems like it's answered in the Gospel of Mark as if Jesus anticipated this very question. So let's think back to Mark chapter 2. Uh, there we have a story where four men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. But there's an impassable barrier, a very, very dense crowd. They can't get to Christ. And, and so they take the stairs up to the flat roof, outdoor stairs, flat roof, a very customary feature of a housing architecture in the, in the Middle East of Jesus' day. It's still often done that way. They remove the roof tiles and they lower their friend on the bed or a portable pallet. They lower him down through the roof to the floor. Now, in the continuation of the story, the sequence and actions of Jesus are very, very important. First, we read that Jesus sees their faith. 
Secondly, he speaks to the paralytic. Thirdly, he tells him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, now the scribes and the crowd are offended at the audacity of Jesus to forgive sins. They consider it to be nothing other than blasphemy. And, of course, if Jesus were a mere man, it would be incredibly blasphemous for Jesus to have said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus, perceiving in his spirit their thoughts, speaks to the scribes this way. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man was immediately healed. Now, in this story, Jesus is making it very clear that his power to heal people is the proof that he has the power to forgive sins. His authority to heal physically is also his authority to save spiritually. So in all of these healing stories where Jesus is delivering people out of extraordinarily difficult circumstances, even raising the child of Jairus from the dead, Mark is proclaiming the gospel that Jesus has the power to save anyone from their sins and to bring them to salvation. But furthermore, Jesus does several miraculous healings not according to the faith of the person who's healed, but in response to the faith of others, just like the paralytic. And it is these others who bring their loved one to Jesus, who beg of Jesus, who are interceding on their loved one's behalf. Now, that was the key point, the key message, when we looked at the Syrophoenician woman in the earlier section, the first story before this one. You have a demonized daughter, you have a mother, and you have a mother who brings a daughter who could never bring herself to Jesus. She brings the child to Jesus, she begs Jesus, and Jesus heals the child. She actually brings the child, not physically, but she brings the child, as it were, through, through prayer, because she comes directly to Christ while the child is at home, and Jesus heals now, and that's the key message and the key concern that we see in this particular story as well. Let's understand what is the vital truth, what is the, the, the key message that we need to embrace. It's this. Our faith is something God can use. In fact, it's something that Jesus actually does use on behalf of others who cannot believe or cannot help themselves spiritually. Scripture teaching us that, that Jesus acts to save in response to the faith of others. That's such an important idea and concept for us as believers. The key encouragement and application of this to us as Christians is this. We must look upon hopeless and helpless cases of, of loved ones and of friends who are strangers to God's grace 
And we must come to Jesus in faith on their behalf, seeking Jesus to save them. So, we come to this story. With that in mind, we need to be reminded about the context here a little bit. Jesus is outside of his primary mission calling. If you remember, Jesus has said that he has come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when he went up to the Syrophoenician area up in Tyre and Sidon, uh, that was outside of the range of the Jewish population. And now in leaving Tyre and Sidon, he circles all the way around eastwardly of the Sea of Galilee and comes to the Decapolis. A Decapolis, a city of uh, basically a, a, a network of ten cities established by the, the Greek Gentiles a couple of centuries earlier. Minimal Jewish population, maximally uh, populated by those who are pagans and Gentiles with respect to the Christian faith. But Jesus had had a significant ministry there sometime earlier when he had delivered the, the, the demoniac possessed by a legion of demons, that same general region. Now, the encouragement that we see that Jesus actually goes outside of his main region of ministry is to recognize this. If Christ was willing to help someone outside of his primary mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, how much more we can trust him to be willing for those who are called the congregation of his people. You see that there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, in Jesus' day, people thought, and the Jew, Jewish people thought, who were believing in Jesus, it's for us Jews. But by virtue of Jesus going outside of that, he was saying that his gospel, his grace, is not just for the lost sheep of Israel, it's really for the lost of the world. And so here we are, the people of God. We know we have tremendously special benefits as being the people of God. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't love and care for people who are outside the church, outside of the fellowship of believers? That's what the story is telling us. Therefore, we should be encouraged to look at family members and friends who seem to be hopelessly lost and realize that, well, at the very least, we ought to be bringing them to Jesus, to the throne of grace. Now, we get into the story then. In the first part of the story, which is about a, a hopeless and helpless man, we understand this. His condition, in terms of his uh, physical impairments, um, are along the lines of a total hearing loss and a severe speech impediment. In fact, the speech impediment is so severe that in verse 27, the reference is that he's, it's even mute. Jesus can help the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So first then, some important observations about this man's helplessness. Let's begin with his deafness. He could not hear that it was Jesus who had come to his town. Uh, although he likely saw a great crowd, because uh, Matthew points out that Jesus came, a crowd gathered, he was teaching and working miracles, a crowd surrounded him. Mark also mentions the crowd in verse 33. This fellow would not have been able to grasp, because of the lack of hearing, what was actually going on in his community. And we notice from the story itself that this man was not part of that crowd, but rather his friends had to go and get him to bring him to Christ. We also note this, that because of his deafness, even if he had been part of the crowd, he would not have been able to hear 
anything which Jesus said. Now, although it's the case that in every culture where there are deaf people, um, sign language uh, spontaneously develops between someone who's deaf and family and friends so that communication begins to take place. However, the point is, on his own, he was outside of the ability to hear Jesus. It would have taken someone else to help him, which is to say it was beyond his natural ability to connect with Christ or to hear what Jesus was saying. And then as well, even if he had been there with Jesus and had walked up to Jesus, his speech impediment would have disabled him from acting, asking directly for Christ to help. Now we know, of course, being supernatural in his, in his incarnation, Jesus would have understood. But you can, st- you can understand what the hesitation would have been. If you were unable to speak, or if you had a speech impediment, how difficult it would be for you to walk up to someone and say, this is how I need to be helped. Because you would be doing it with a bit of vocals and hand signs, knowing this guy isn't going to understand what I'm doing at all. All of this points out the severity of the man's situation with respect to Christ actually being there. From that standpoint, he's hopeless. From that standpoint, he's helpless. He obviously can't do this on his own. He's beyond, as we would say, in himself, he's beyond the normal means of gospel communication. But, at the same time, with respect to the story... It is a story about the faith of his caring and loving friends. Verse 32. We read that this man was brought to Jesus. We're not told who they were. We're not told how many there were. But obviously, reading into the story, what the story is showing us is that there were a group of friends, maybe just two or three, who who knew this this, this man who was unable to hear, this man who was unable to speak clearly, they cared about him. They loved him. And, and, and they have heard what Jesus can do. And perhaps they've even been there in the crowd and they're able to see what Jesus can do. And among themselves, they have spoken about this, obviously, because they come to an agreement. We need to bring our friend to Jesus. And then verse 32, we note two specific actions on their part. Having decided that they needed to bring him, they actually bring him to Jesus. They bring him. He does not find Jesus on his own. He's not seeking Jesus on his own initiative. They are bringing the man to Christ. And secondly, I want you to notice what the text very clearly says. They beg Jesus to lay his hand upon their friend. We can see this in terms of these friends speaking to Jesus as a species and kind of prayer. The great commentators of the faith, when they go back and and walk people through the gospel accounts, point out again and again that what the disciples do when they ask Jesus questions what other people do when they ask Jesus questions is, in terms of who Jesus is, they are praying. And it's clear. 
If Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, anyone speaking to him is, in fact, enacting some form of prayer. Except the Pharisees and the scribes are always arguing with Jesus and want to destroy him. We're talking about those who come with some semblance of faith. Now, but I want you to understand clearly that it's not just that they're asking Jesus, they're not just praying to Jesus. More truthfully, they're begging Jesus. Very often this word for begging in other translations and from the original Greek is urging. They are urging Jesus to come and to heal their friend. They're urging Jesus because they see it to be an urgent thing. We would note again in the story, just like the story before the Syrophoenician woman, it's their faith. It's their faith that's urging Jesus to act. Their faith begging Jesus to act. Their faith motivating them to seek out Jesus in prayer to help their friend. They do this out of, obviously, a great love and concern for their friend. They come with the faith and confidence that Jesus could and Jesus would be able to heal their friend. And then the last major idea that we find in this passage encourages us to examine how Jesus responded to this man. How did Jesus respond? Well, not just to the man that he heals. How does Jesus respond to their faith? Well, first of all, we we recognize that Jesus does. They bring the man to Jesus. And in verse 33, we read that Jesus takes this man away. He takes him away from the crowd. And I want you to think about that. Jesus is having an effective ministry with many. Speaking the word, healing But in response to the faith of these men who bring this man to Jesus, Jesus chooses to give this man his complete and undivided and even private attention. Is that not significant? Have you ever been in a large crowd at a popular event and perhaps the person was a baseball player signing autographs? Or perhaps you had visited a semi-famous church and and the preacher was something of a celebrity. And you, you wanted to go up to get an autograph or you wanted to go up and shake the hand. You wanted to go up and see the special guy. And how much time did you get? if you were ever successful at doing that. We, we know the way it is within the world. We know that those who are singled out as celebrities, we know that those who are the focal point of attention when there are crowds, when someone comes up, it's just one more person he has to deal with quickly and dismiss. You've seen it. We've seen it. We may have experienced it. Some of us may have been, you know, starstruck, glittering, and, and, and there's a movie star. And we, you know, how it is. Jesus responds to their faith And he gives this man his personal and his private attention. This is significant in terms of an omnipotent God whose son sits at his right hand 
sharing this omnipotence power and his ability to respond to you as though there was no one else in all of creation. Our God can give you his undivided attention. If you know that, how often do you avail yourself of that privilege? If you know from the example of Jesus that God is able to give you his undivided attention, when was the last time you took the God of this universe up on that privilege to be in his presence and to recognize that it's not like God is looking at you but busy on his phone texting somebody else. It's not like you're there with God and a beep comes in and he's got to check his Facebook status. It is that singular, undivided, and private attention that Jesus gives to this man that is the privilege of all of us who would pray. So Jesus takes this man away. Jesus takes this man into a place where there's privacy. And then we notice in verse 33 the manner in which Jesus heals him. Now the text says that he put his fingers into his ears. And you can check all sorts of translations. Most of them do the into the ear thing. But the Greek preposition there is translated in or into or on. Now, I suspect that Jesus wasn't really putting his fingers into the man's ears. I think what Jesus was doing was an immediate form of sign language. He was touching the man's ears in order to convey to the man, this is what I'm going to do for you. And, and likewise, when, when he spits, he's indicating that he's also going to be working with the man's mouth that in that kind of sign language, in that kind of symbolic action, he is expressing in a manner that the man can understand exactly what he intends to do. I think this shows our Savior's great care and great compassion. The healing of this man is not some kind of assembly line healing. There are lots and lots of healings of Christ. How particular, how personal, how much the healing pattern we see here is directly adapted to the very condition of this man. Again, the God of the universe knows your needs. He knows your concerns. He will not respond to you as though you simply are a number like anyone else in all the universe and he will just click off his program in terms of how to deal with you. He sees you personally. He sees you individually. He knows how your ears do not hear. He knows how your tongue does not speak. He knows your disabilities 
in order to enter into and react in your life and work in you in accordance with his particular wisdom and love and grace to work on your behalf. And then we see the final action of Christ with respect to the healing. There are three particular things that Jesus does in this act of healing. Did you see as you read this, the first thing that Jesus does is prayer? What the text says is that Jesus looks up to heaven. A careful reading of the Gospels indicates that every time this is the action of Jesus, it is an action connected with prayer. So Jesus lifts up his face toward heaven in order to pray. But I also want you to note how this is also a form of symbolic communication to the man that he's healing. What would be your instant reflex if you were standing face to face with someone and he looks up like this? You likewise would respond by looking up as well. Jesus was conveying to this man, what I am about to do with you is done in accordance with the God who answers prayer. This healing comes to you from heaven itself, from the love and the care of a compassionate God. The second thing that Jesus does is Jesus sighs. Now, in some ways, this is an unfortunate translation because the word sigh is almost always used in the rest of the New Testament translated as the word groan. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses twice in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. The first reference is Romans 8.17, where Paul writes these words, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The universe groaning. But more significantly, and connected to the passage we're looking at today, is what is said in Romans 8.26, where Paul writes, The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now listen. Here is Jesus interceding for this man in front of him with groanings that are too deep for words. As if at that very moment Jesus is taking upon himself the burdens of this man's afflictions, which would fulfill what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, that Christ would bear our griefs and he would carry our sorrows. And then the third thing the man says, that Jesus says to the man is this, Ephphathah, an Aramaic word, which means be opened. It's a command. And because it is the word of Jesus, Jesus whom scripture tells us upholds all creation by the word of his power, because it is a command of Jesus, it must be obeyed. And in verse 35 we read that this man was healed instantly. 
His ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. Now let's wrap this up. What is the big lesson here? It's that Jesus did all this. Jesus did all this for this man upon the urgings of his friends. They sought Jesus for him. They urged Jesus to heal him on his behalf. They acted out of their faith on behalf of their friend what he could not do for himself. And Jesus acted in response to their faith. Now, people of God, you and I have such friends who spiritually are helpless and hopelessly lost. Brothers and sisters, to our heartbreak, you and I have family members who are spiritually and hopelessly lost. We are grandparents who have grandchildren whose spiritual destinies are a constant worry upon our hearts. We have children who have walked away from the faith in which they were raised. And it is the deepest pain that we experience. And we have friends that we have cared about, that we have worked with, that we have lived near, that have been in the circle of our relationship. And even today, they seem to be outside of the boundaries of hearing the word of Christ. They seem to be so hopelessly and helplessly lost. But have we not looked at this story? Have we not seen what such friends did on behalf of their friend who was helpless and hopeless in his natural condition. It does not matter that the people we care about can't pray for themselves. It does not matter that their lives are held in bondage to the spirit who is at work within this world, the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers to the glory of the power of Jesus to save. What matters is that you and I can pray for them. We can bring them spiritually to the throne of grace. We can beg Jesus. We can urge Jesus on their behalf. Those who cannot do this for themselves. Parents, to pray this way for our children. Friends, on behalf of friends who don't know Christ. We need to be their advocates. We need to be their intercessors. I want you to think about people you know that don't know Christ and ask yourself this question. Who is praying for them? I want you to think about your children who are lost and separated from Jesus and ask, who is praying for them who would have the heart for them like you as a mom and dad would have. Grandparents, 
I want you to think about what, when you worry about your children, your grandchildren, does that worry take you to the throne of grace on their behalf? That's what this story ultimately is all about. Seeing those who out of their faith brought their friends, hopeless and helpless, to Jesus, begging Jesus, urging Jesus to do for them, for their friend, what he could never do for himself. I want to give you two verses that have encouraged me with respect to my own grown daughter who walked away from the faith so long ago, separated herself from every form of Christianity, and here are two verses that because they come from God, I urge them back to God on the throne of grace. In Jeremiah 31, 27, we read these words. The Lord says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And I say, Lord, is my daughter too difficult for you? How could it ever be? Bring her back. And then in Isaiah 59, verse 1, the first phrase there is, Behold, the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. And I say, Lord God, an all-powerful arm, you can reach the infinite distance into my daughter's heart. So we must imitate the faith of these men who brought their hopeless and helpless friend to Jesus. And so we need to be advocates and intercessors on behalf of those who don't know Christ because of themselves they have no hope. But God has placed them upon our hearts so that we might be those who in faith believing would bring them before a gracious throne. Let's pray. Almighty God, there is no one else to go to but you on behalf of people we love so dearly whose lives are broken by the sinfulness of this world, the sinful choices which they've made, and their blindness to what would ultimately and truly help them, even you, Lord Jesus. And so... Help us not to sit around in despair. Help us to realize that we have all reason based on Scripture to bring them to you, to bring them before you, to ask you and urge you on their behalf, to bring them what they so deeply need, which is the eternal salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And so this is what we pray. This is what we ask for in his name. Amen.